the challenge, the opportunity to connect. The 1960s, a time of imagination and change, a time of anger and fear. The 1960s, a program called Challenge. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Looked at our connections, our divisions, through the lens of faith. Nearly 60 years later, during these challenging times, we'll take a new look at our divisions, our connections, in a new program called Challenge 2.0. In last week's episode of Challenge 2.0, we spoke with a member of Washington Physicians for Social Responsibility about the growing health impact of air pollution. This week, we hear the group's recommendations for change. Part two of when air pollution won't let us say, ah. If you joined us last week, you heard a fascinating discussion on the health impacts of air pollution and other sources of environmental damage. Uh, once again this week, we welcome Dr. Chris Covert-Bolds, uh, who is both a family physician and a board member of Washington Physicians for Social Responsibility. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Uh, for people that didn't get an opportunity to watch last week, tell us a little bit about yourself, your practice of medicine, what drew you into it, and then what also drew you into some of these issues in terms of environmental injustice and environmental and health damage. Sure. Uh, I went into family medicine, went to University of Washington. I thought family medicine for me is the perfect balance of uh, having ongoing relationships with people, mm -hmm. uh, helping them get to through uh, health uh, crises and kind of getting on the other side and also being able to do procedural things that kind of keep the, the, both the mind and the hands occupied and, and keeps it interesting in a big variety. PSR, I thought, you know, I got to do my part to try to make the world a better place. Mm -hmm. and, uh, so that's how I got involved with them. And you were seeing these impacts on a daily basis as you'd care for patients. Right. So asthma, allergies, uh, saw a guy with lung blood clots caused by breathing in wildfire smoke, uh, all sorts of things. And uh, so seeing that, I said, you know, uh, when I realized that climate change, you know, is the equivalent of about an atomic bomb going off every second of heating of the world. Wow. Uh, I said, it's, it's the nuclear war that's already happening. Uh, PSR started to try to prevent nuclear war, but when mm -hmm. I heard they got involved with climate action, I said, okay, that's I'm getting back involved to, to try to help prevent, uh, you know, the worsening of the climate and to pass on a healthy climate for our kids. And you've seen personal experiences just even within your own family, I think you said. Right, yeah, our son, when he was very young, uh, he was struggling to breathe uh, with an asthma attack, and uh, we were just, you know, sitting all day long in a museum. We were visiting, giving him, uh, you know, nebulizer treatments uh, to try to stay out of the ER, and we got him through it, but mm -hmm. it's very, very scary uh, when you or your child can't breathe, and, uh, you know, I'm sad that the polar bears are having a really rough time, and who knows what will happen to them, but to me, the, the more the more compelling face of climate change is the inner city, you know, child str mm -hmm. studying, you know, struggling to breathe. That speaks to me even more so. So that's what I wanted to step up and do what I could about. I remember seeing a National Academy of Science uh, paper that was put out, and it said the people that are generally responsible for most of the air pollution are not the people that are suffering the most. Right. Uh, whereas the people that are least responsible are suffering the most. What do you see? Uh, maybe give us a little more background on that issue. Yeah, it's the, we call it the climate justice part, you know, kind of face of the movement to say that, yeah, the people with the least 
uh, who have least caused the climate mess mm -hmm. are the ones most affected, both uh, people of color and low-income people in this country, and even more so worldwide. Uh, you know, the poorer countries in Africa, especially, that mm -hmm. have the least amount of you know fossil fuel use, are the most uh, affected by uh, warming trends and you know deserts spreading and you know droughts and and, and uh, you know storms, mm -hmm. and heat waves. So it's uh, it's the per you know it's the perfect storm of the least you know responsible being the most affected. On the flip side, those who are less, who are the most responsible, especially in America, have the biggest responsibility to step up and, and take care of things. So yeah, how will you get the data about you know who suffers and mm -hmm. dies from climate change and other things? It's you know been, depends on how you ask the question, and some things are not so easy to see. So just recently in Washington State. Uh, a number of years ago, we fought to have, you know, was tobacco use, did smoking or chewing tobacco contribute mm -hmm. to this person's death? That was a big political fight to get that added to the state death certificate. And then once we had that, we're like, oh, look, look, now we can see what's happening. Similarly, just recently, Washington State added, was this person homeless in the past year? Really? That's now on the death certificate in Washington State. Guess what we're going to see? We're going to see things we never saw before. Imagine if you know we could say you know another aspect of that. You know, did climate change or whatever? Uh, because very often you know a person who dies from a heat wave, you know, it's coded as the the kind of the final thing. You know, they had a heart attack or mm -hmm. they had a stroke or they had kidney failure. But you know, we're supposed to say you know with the background, you know, underlying cause from that. And then someplace we can add in, you know, but it takes taking that extra step. Oh, you know, there was a heat wave. You know, how often is the doc going to think, you know, climate change was the underlying cause? Right. So it takes, uh, you know, a little more careful analysis to pick that up. But the more we look, the more we're seeing that. And so, like you say, you know, one in five deaths in the world, you know, due to the climate change and mm -hmm. the air quality, you know, that you know, it takes. But researchers have figured out how to how to do that. Similarly, with the storms getting worse, right. you know, there's the attribution thing. And for exactly. years, oh, we can't say that this hurricane was caused by climate change. Well, smart scientists can say, well, you know, it can be X, you know, five times more likely or 20% more likely. Right. You know, so, yeah, we can attribute, attribute that. And we saw with the heat waves we had here, I think, of last summer, we well, uh, last October we hit 88 degrees. We had, I think it was 13 90-degree-plus days. And we saw... Uh, Deaths from the summer before when we hit 108 degrees, and we see a lot of migrant farm workers are being burdened with this. As a group, uh, Washington Physicians for Social Responsibility, what have you seen with that aspect of the burden on people that are migrants and maybe fall beneath the radar? Yeah, so we're in touch with uh, migrant farm workers up in Skagit, Whatcom County, and they're working outdoors in that heat and that smoke. Uh, and there's no indoor work, you know, for farm workers. You can't just take your break and, you know, work indoors or dial it in from home. You know? Right. There's no, right. There's no committing from home if you're a farm worker. So they have the direct impact. I mean, they're waking up at, you know, super early, you know, start work at 3 a.m. so they can, you know, work before it gets too hot. But, yeah, taking into account these communities are most impacted from, you know, being outdoors, working mm -hmm. outdoors. We have to really stand up, you know, in solidarity with these people. And they're standing up for themselves. And so Washington State finally has improved some uh, workplace guidelines. For mm -hmm. years, they never included farm workers. Finally, we're saying now we have some better, you know, temperature guidelines for mm -hmm. outdoor workers. And now I'm not, I don't know the latest on the air quality ones, but that's certainly a hot topic as well. Yeah. 
and we touched on this a little bit last week, where it had long been said the biggest obstacle to getting useful action was denialism. Uh, and what's manifested today sometimes as greenwashing, where they'll put out very nice public relations statements, but in fact, the individuals or the corporate entities that are responsible really aren't addressing the issue. Michael Mann says that's still an issue, and Michael Mann, uh, climate science fame, said that doomism is the biggest obstacle, the belief that we can't achieve anything. Uh, what's, I know you talk to a lot of groups. What's your response on that? So uh, absolutely, we can tackle climate change. That's the good news. Mm -hmm. you know, I went to a talk a while back, and it said, a non-depressing talk about climate change. I said, that's what we need. That's what I need. That's what we all need. And it's absolutely doable. Mm -hmm. It's policy. Uh, we all need to do our part in our personal lives. That, that definitely you know, helps. Uh, driving less, eating less meat, I would say. Mm -hmm. and, but the policy levels on the bigger scale uh, to get you know, governments and corporations to make the shifts, uh, we know that people's attitudes about climate change dramatically shifted with the fossil fuel companies' ginormous, uh, you know, basically brainwashing propaganda yeah. uh, effort over many, many years, hundreds of millions of dollars, and funding their own junk science and stuff. They bought the book from the tobacco companies. Uh, so we know that they, but right now, the climate impacts are so obvious that the denialism is really a pretty small part, mm -hmm. but they would like us to move straight from, you know, denialism to, oh, it's hopeless, you know, so, and then if you make people lose hope, then they figure, you know, why do anything? You just ride the Titanic on down, you know, and, and play on the, you know, the deck. So we say, I say, that it's not too late, mm -hmm. especially uh, young people, you know, our, our kids, you know, they're very aware of it. They're much mm -hmm. more aware of it than older folks. And they're much more aware that they're going to be around longer than us older folks. Exactly. And so many of them have, you know, don't have enough hope. So I say, you know, we have to be a people of hope and a people of action. Uh, and so we're all called to, to do our part individually. Mm -hmm. And I say every group that everyone's a part of, you know, any group you're part of, that group can probably be doing more of their part on it. So be it a church or synagogue, be it a social group, a college, you know, a neighborhood, all of those levels, are, you know, where you shop, where you have your investment money, where right. your retirement account is, where you do your banking. Uh, the, the banks are the ones funding these fossil fuel projects. So we need to put pressure on them to say, we need to, you know, the old thing is if you're stuck in a hole, the first thing to get out of the problem is stop digging. Yeah. You know, so we need to stop digging our way down into this fossil fuel pollution hole by stopping new fossil fuel projects. And we've seen examples in the past. I just think back to the 60s. You know, we had horrible smog in L.A. and New York. They had pictures of L.A. that I can remember where they had to turn on all the lights during the middle of the afternoon because it was so dark. You had a river in Ohio, I think it was a Cuyahoga, that caught fire. And yet all of those situations have been reversed and are considerably better. What was the key to making that change? It was the public outcry and people demanding action. And that's what we need now. Mm -hmm. You know, we need to say that it's important enough for me and my kids and grandkids that they have a world that's livable. Mm -hmm. You know, what are you ready to put your heart and soul and energy into? I'd say that's a pretty good cause. And we've seen, we saw a response also with regulation and the ability that, yes, we do have a bit of a responsibility to each other. The uh, classic example is the, uh, 
the greenhouse, the uh, gases that they banned a number of years ago, the Freon and stuff like mm -hmm. that, uh, that was causing the, the hole in the ozone. These gases that were literally eating up our ozone that was going right. to you know, fry us all with more you know, skin cancers. And they just made an international agreement to say, you know, we can ban these uh, refrigerants. We have other alternatives that work just as well. Yeah. And they, it was completely effective. And the, you know that hole in the ozone is is gradually getting you know back to the way it, you know it is to protect us from these UV rays, and that was one of the best examples of international cooperation to make a huge difference. Mm -hmm. These international agreements on climate action, you know, take uh, you know enforcing and take coming up with, and it takes countries like uh, ours and other countries that are trying to slow them down right. to step out of the way. You know, the old uh, either lead, follow, or get out get of the out way. Of the way. You know, so. It's all of us to you know, get our leaders to say, we need effective action and we can do it. In that vein, we've seen some changes in terms of programs in our own state. I think they're called greenhouse gas allowances. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know you've been involved in that, WPSR has been. Uh, for those of us that are not as familiar with that, explain that program a little bit. Yeah, so we essentially have a cap-and-trade system. So uh, places, companies that uh, produce carbon dioxide emissions mm -hmm. or any greenhouse gas emissions have to uh, bid to get an allowance that gradually decreases over time, and it's an auction, basically, to uh, essentially have the right to uh, emit those. Mm -hmm. And it's a, an allowance based on the tons of CO2 you know, released. And we thought, oh, it'll bring in, you know, a certain amount of money. We don't know because it's an auction. Yeah. Well, it's brought in a multiple of what they thought. So the current estimate I saw is over the next few years, like $1.7 billion wow. just in the state, just from these polluters, you know, basically getting a permit to pollute. And again, it gradually goes down and it's mm -hmm. allowance and it, it phases it out. Uh, and putting that money directly into helping schools to retrofit for earthquakes and helping people, you know, deal with climate change and helping low-income communities that are the most impacted to, mm -hmm. you know, retrofit and, and not have to breathe this stuff. So, you know, a good cause with good money, you know, from a good cause and lowering the carbon emissions. It's perfect. Much opposition to that? I would say no, because, uh, you know, uh, what we saw is the, the fossil, they're like, well, they kind of whined and, you know, did their usual thing. But, but then they got used to it and they're like, okay, we can just plan this in. All right, mm -hmm. we have a policy. They're going to deal with it. And they're the richest companies in the world anyway. So they could do it without even passing on any cost to us at all, you know, pay their execs a few hundred million dollars less. But they're, they're right on board. They're doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the other issues that I know your group has been involved in is uh, the impact, the health impact of gas stoves. Mm -hmm. And I want to hear more about that, but I know your group also did a video. And so we'd like to just pause for a moment and just share with you a brief excerpt from that video. gas industry has known about these risks for a long time, and the health research is definitive. Children who live in homes with gas stoves have a 42% higher incidence of asthma symptoms. You're probably wondering what it will take to change things. Just like with big tobacco, it will take action on the part of our public officials, and in this case the utility companies. Households and families should not be on their own. We need funding and programs for lower and middle income families to swap out gas for clean electric cooking and heating in their homes. That's the public health and justice imperative now. And it's going to take ongoing 
action on the part of our public officials and our utility companies to make it possible for everyone to make the switch to electric. Chris, what is the science behind those concerns on gas stoves and what is the impact? So we know that the gas stoves are releasing gas even when they're not turned on, number one. A uh, study in California found a large amount of gas emissions that you couldn't even smell. They were that well, low level. We know that the indoor air quality uh, can be worse than the, at a level that outdoors would be illegal. Mm -hmm. So that sometimes the indoor air quality is worse for us than even being outdoors, you know, next to a highway. We know that uh, some gas stoves don't even have any venting at all, mm -hmm. or they have a fan that just is within the room and doesn't actually vent outside. And of course, when it's on, it's releasing gas and it's burning some of it and not burning some of it, and mm -hmm. it's releasing all these you know, nasty chemicals that you breathe in. So at least we say, you know, put it on the back burner, turn on the, the, the fan as, as mm -hmm. high as you can, and ideally you know, use it as, as little as possible. Uh, in our house, we shifted to, you know, the old electric uh, hot water pot instead of, you know, turning on the gas to heat up some water for tea. Simple things like that. You know, there's these new stovetop induction burners now that mm -hmm. are, you know, super fast, electric, very efficient, you know, heat things up super fast and you can get just that or you can get the whole stove unit. Um, so shifting off of fossil fuels in your home, because for most people, most of their fossil fuel emissions are from their home, even if they're driving a gas car. So, you know, shifting off of gas cars as soon as we can, and then uh, shifting the home from, uh, to electricity. So in our state, we passed the new building uh, code that say all mm -hmm. new buildings would be no gas, just electricity. What has been the impact or what sort of uh, science is there in terms of the actual impact of inhaling that gas uh, within so the So we home. know the gas uh, stoves uh, cause 13% of childhood asthma. That's one in eight kids are getting asthma from your gas stove. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's not clean gas. It's not, it's not natural gas. It's, we call it fracked gas, and we call it fossil fuel gas. Mm -hmm. And you're burning it in your home. It's bad for your kids. It's bad for your older folks. Uh, we know 40% more asthma symptoms from, uh, for kids in homes that have uh, gas use. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're kind of literally poisoning ourselves. There's, you know, there's a big industry that's been telling us for years and years that this is, you know, great for us, and, uh, but we know it's bad for us. So we need to shift off that as quick as we can. We need to make policies and allowances to help lower income folks be able to afford to shift mm -hmm. that over. New buildings, of course. So big changes, and we know it's going to be good for our health. Uh, when you see young people that have asthma, uh, that have maybe contracted it from that exposure, what does that do to their quality of life? What does that do for their opportunities? So it has a huge impact. Uh, you know, I, I heard of one neighborhood, an inner city neighborhood, where a girl was struggling with asthma, and she was like, all her friends were struggling with asthma. She thought everyone in the world had asthma because everyone she knew had it. And you're like, you know, struggling to breathe, mm -hmm. that's horrible. And, you know, you, like the Lung Association says, when you can't breathe, nothing else matters. Yeah. You know, uh, and it's completely preventable. You know, we treat it with inhalers and stuff after the fact, but, you know, to prevent it is much, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Right. So that's what we really should be into is preventing mm -hmm. all that suffering. What might be some other recommendations you suggest to people? 
So yeah, if you have a gas stove, you know, looking to get, you can just get in a stove top induction burner, which you can just buy just separately, one or two, you know, because how often are you using all four burners at once? Not that often. Right. So you can, for a very, you know, affordable cost, under 50 to $100, I think you can get one, a single induction burner just by itself. You need to, usually I'm just using one burner. Mm -hmm. you know, so you can just do that and you're using very efficient electricity and not even using the gas. So the less you use it, the less you're breathing that stuff in. Ideally over time, you know, it's a bigger cost to, you know, switch over completely. Right. But you can just, you know, you don't have to get rid of the gas stuff. You can just use it less and less. Mm -hmm. um, uh, heat pumps, similarly, you know, that's a big thing in our state now. Right. We've mandated heat pumps for new buildings, and it, which work both to heat. Even on a cold day, they somehow pull heat out of a cold day outside. Below 30 degrees, you can still bring in heat out of the outdoors into your home. It seems magical. And on the hot days, you can cool the home. Mm -hmm. So they're both a heater and like an air conditioner, but much more efficient. Uh, so making those changes and, and building policies so that we're uh, enabling lower income communities to, to, to be helped as well. And possibly some of that money from the uh, greenhouse exactly. program you know, that you were talking yep, about. Yep. Let the polluters pay for the transition. Yeah. It seems that there are two major obstacles we face when we're dealing with changes like this. And one is cost, the ability, as we talked about, for people to afford it, uh, but also resistance to regulation. As a board member of uh, Washington Physicians for Social Responsibility, how do you orient yourself and what strategies do you follow on that? For economics and cost and doing what we need to do, uh, just recently um, we put in a new um, financial system in the state uh, where the richest folks would pay you know, a, a tax percent based right. on, I forget exactly what it was, it was investments or investment income or something. And it's like, whoa, we're waking, you know, that's a huge untapped source. Of course, an income tax is the most fair tax system, mm -hmm. and Washington State has one of the most unfair tax systems in the country. Right. So that the, the rich people are not paying their way. When we stepped up for the COVID pandemic, and mm -hmm. we're like, oh, with some policy and some resources, you know, it's not just everyone scrambling for themselves. You know, everyone should be able to be protected and vaccinated and get tested for COVID. And we said, yes, that's a priority because we're all, you know, in it together. And I think that was a big step. People like, oh, and we have a policy for something that's important that we all agree on that's a big threat that we can step up and do amazing things. Mm -hmm. And we said, you know, it's gonna cost some money. Well, we have the money to spend on it that we decide we do. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, when we're, we're still subsidizing oil companies to, you know, trillions of dollars. You know, that's a big source. You know, why do they need subsidies? They're the richest countries and companies in the world. So, you know, some, I would say, some justifiable shifts in priorities. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to spend so much money on nuclear weapons that we hope to never use. You know, there's a huge source of you know, money that we could spend on more useful things. So there's the policy. I think it's getting people together and say, you know, what's for the public good? You know, what's the best good for the most people? You know, what's a lens of uh, justice and equality that, you know, holds up the people who have the least uh, ability, you know, have the most, have suffered the most? Mm -hmm. You know, let's have some social justice in there. So that's what we stand up for. And, you know, the companies who are making money on it, they say, you know, we're in here to make the money on it. And, you know, just because you're letting us do it this way. And yep. it's your job to regulate us. You know, we're going to fight against it because, you know, that's what they do. 
that's it's our job to 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 regulate that and and to take into account the health of the public and the the public good. Mm -hmm. So we each have to do our part. You know, they're doing their part. We're doing our part. <laughs> <laughs> when we had uh, when and I'm not sure which branch of the medical community came out in terms of gun violence and saying this is a health issue and of course there are some that still dispute that. The response I think from the National Rifle Association was uh, doc stay in your lane and a lot of docs said this is our lane. Uh, is this the same and what would you say to those that say this is not uh, really a legitimate issue for you to take on as a health professional? So I, you know, as a health professional, I'm in it for help people with their health. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, responsible gun owners support responsible gun policies. Uh, I would, you know, who needs a, a semi-automatic weapon? For hunting, you're gonna take out Bambi with a semi-automatic, make him into hamburger? No, you know, that's called a rifle. You know, mm -hmm. you don't need to kill Bambi with 20 shots in five seconds. So those semi-automatic weapons are made for killing large mm -hmm. amounts of people. Australia is the perfect example. They are very much a big gun culture like ours. Years ago, they had the mass gun fatality rate like we did. And after one more horrendous event, they said, we're going to do this. And they just instituted policy, say, you know, these semi-automatic weapons, these large capacity magazines, that's the specific thing, mm -hmm. you know, that we can make some easy switches and we're not banning guns, you know, people want to go hunting, they can still have those. And the rate of mass shootings plummeted in Australia from that one policy. Do they still have mental health problems there like we do? Of course. Mm -hmm. Do people still get depressed? Yes. Do still people get suicidal? Yes. It still happens, but the mass shootings have plummeted. So we could easily do that. We had a ban on assault weapons here for a number of years, mm -hmm. but they made it this weird you know, policy that would end on its own if it didn't get continued. Right. But <laughs> so we need to get this, that policy back in place. And just as the medical community made a point that this is a legitimate concern of yours, you're seeing the same thing in terms of air pollution and climate. Absolutely. So in, in PSR, and we say, you know, we need to tackle with policy the things that we cannot solve, mm -hmm. you know, by ourselves, individual, face-to-face. -face. You know, there's an old uh, uh, analogy. So you're going along a river and you see these people, you know, half drowned floating down the river. And you, you pull them out and you save them. And then you go up river and up river and you're like, what's going on? And you find there's this bridge with a big hole in the middle. They keep falling in. Hmm. You got to fix the bridge. Mm -hmm. You got to fix the policy. You know, it's not just individual one at a time. It's, you know, what's the problem that's leading to the mess? And then you have a policy solution. So you pull people out and you fix the bridge. So that's what we try to do. Uh, Chris, I thank you so much for taking time out of what I know is a very busy schedule as a doctor and also for the work that you do on behalf, not only as a medical professional, but also putting that into action within uh, Physicians for Social Responsibility. So mm -hmm. thank you so much for joining us. Thanks to be here. Yep. And thank you so much for joining us on this edition of Challenge 2.0. We hope you'll tune in again next week.